in the hills of Menomora, Michigan, is coming alive with the festive decorations of the season, and you can see some of those <coughs> today. Holly and ivy and red and gold bedeck the halls. We are reminded that something stupendous, something beautiful occurred over 2,000 years ago, which reaches with its hopeful tentacles into our own day and blesses us today as it did the recipients of long ago. Shepherds in the little town of Bethlehem, just a stone's throw from the Jerusalem capital, were tending to their sheep at night when suddenly and without warning an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. Luke 2, verse 9 and following. In haste they made their way to the stable, indicated by this angelic messenger. The Bible words it this way. They hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. And when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. The shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. Luke 2, verse 16 and following. What was happening? Why were the shepherds so amazed, so awestruck, so full of praise to God? Was this a new revelation? Was this never broached before in their Jewish scriptures? Had their rabbis never taught them anything about God's coming salvation? Had not the prophet Micah foretold some 730 years earlier? But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me, one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are of old, from ancient times. Micah 5 verse 2. 700 plus years is a long time to wait. Generations of people came and went. Wars were fought and won. And wars were fought and lost. Israel as in ancient times was once again subservient to a foreign power. This time Rome. Rome ruled, and they were under Rome's heels. Yet, brethren, delay, delay is a non-entity with God. I mean that time is not his master. Instead, he is the master of time and of all of the events of history. This is no less the case here on Shepherd's Hill outside of Bethlehem. 
Paul explains it this way. When the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law that we might receive the full rights of sons. Galatians 4, verse 4 and 5. Well, the implementation was new. A virgin conceived and brought forth a son. But the concept was old, as old as Isaiah 7 and verse 14, where you have that prophesied. Oh, no, older still, by 50 years or more, when Jonah encapsulated in the belly of a great fish for his willful rebellion to God, and as good as dead, cried out, salvation is from the Lord. And we are told, and the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Jonah 2, verse 10. And so... The man doomed to die was given life instead. That is the angel's message unto you. This day is born a Savior. A Savior. There is a way out for your sin. Now when we say that salvation is of the Lord, which is Jonah's way of saying it, in what ways is salvation of the Lord. Well, number one, you see it in your bulletin there, that God alone saves. That's what he means. God alone saves. People speak of the plan of salvation. And indeed, there is a plan, but alas, it is not the plan most people envision. <coughs> Sinners tend to think that they are not so much the recipients of God's plan of salvation, but more his partner in the plan. We hear statements like, well, God has done all that he can do to save you. Now you must do your part. By which they mean that, they, that you must accept Christ as Savior. So they're saying God gives the Savior, but you have to accept him as such. And if you're not saved, then it's because you have rejected the Savior. So their understanding of God's plan. And I'll speak more on that later. The origin of God's salvation demonstrates how erroneous this view of God's plan is. I mentioned earlier that time is not something appropriate in binding God. Time is a creature limitation. You and I had a beginning. God has no beginning. So when and where was the plan of salvation conceived? Who were the participants? Who were the principles involved? Paul says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, a faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. And at his appointed season, he brought his word to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of our Savior. Titus 1, verses 1 through 3. Now, whatever else these, this verse teaches us, it states that God's promise of salvation preceded time. 
And as we read in Galatians 4, verse 4, it came to light in the fullness of time when Mary gave birth to the Savior. You were not there. I was not there. No one was there except God in Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Simply put, we could say, the plan of salvation, if such language has any meaning, was conceived without human input and counsel. You who bring good tidings to Zion, go on, high, uh, go on up high to the mountain. You who bring good tidings to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up and don't be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and his arm rules over him. Who has understood the mind of the Lord? Who has instructed him? Who has been his counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him? And who taught him the right way? Who was, who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? Isaiah 40, verse 9 and following. And the answer to all these questions is that no one is God's counselor. Not then, not now. The plan of salvation was solely that of God and it preceded time. Again, Paul writes, God, who has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. 2 Timothy 1, verse 9 and 10. When Jonah confessed, salvation is of the Lord, he surely admitted that the plan of salvation was solely and exclusively of God's design. It's his work. But not only did God make the plan, point two, God alone implements the plan. Ask this question, what good is a plan if there's no implementation? Is a plan really a plan unless there is a follow-through from drawing board to completion? Isn't it one of the deficiencies of the plans of men that oftentimes what is envisioned cannot or is not brought to fruition because of unforeseen variables? Obstacles may arise which are not anticipated. The plan was too costly. The money was too scarce. Those in authority were too cautious, and so the plan was scrapped. Timing wasn't right. There was an economic downturn. War broke out. Unrest in the stock market. All of these things caused men to adjust their plans or forsake them altogether. The wise man words it this way. Many are the plans in a man's heart. But it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. Proverbs 19 verse 21. Amen. Men fall 
excuse me, men fail in the implementation of their plans because they are not sovereign over all the variables which may come against them to frustrate their plans. Chief among them is God's own will, which men's plans often oppose. We read from Isaiah, the Lord says, These people come near to me with their mouth. They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is made up only of rules taught by men. Therefore, once more I will astound these people with wonder upon wonder. The wisdom of the wise will perish. The intelligence of the intelligent will vanish. Woe to those who do who go to great depths to hide their plans from the Lord, who do their work in darkness, and they think, who sees us? Who will know? Isaiah 29, verse 13 through 15. Well, concerning the plan of salvation, you can be sure that if man were part of the implementation, he would have seen to it that he had a cushy part. A cushy part to play so that he could boast. We want to save ourselves and resist the idea of God alone saving us. We want to resist that we are recipients of grace and mercy. Which none of us deserve and which none of us can earn by our own merit. But the implementation is as much a part of eternity past as the plan of salvation itself. Implementation. Let's consider just four elements. Number one, God's plan called for a sinless Savior. Peter tells us that we are redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. 1 Peter 1, verse 19 and 20. Jesus, God's Son as his Savior, was not an afterthought with God, but chosen before man made his debut on the earth. See, God had in his plan the remedy for our sin. Secondly, God's plan called for an atoning Savior. What do we mean by that? <clears throat> well, a stand-in Savior, one whose death and shed blood could pay for sin. John describes Jesus as the lamb that was slain from the creation of the world, Revelation 13, verse 8. So when did the implementation happen in the mind of God? In sending his son, Yes, he needed a son that was sinless. He also needed an atoning Savior. And here we have it in Revelation 13, verse 8, that the son was going to be the lamb slain. And that was determined, we are told, from the creation of the world. This is forethought. Thirdly, God's plan called for recipients among men who were certain to benefit from God's salvation. In him, the scripture says, Christ Jesus, that is, in him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan. 
the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to open Christ might be for the praise of his glory. Ephesians 1, verse 11 and 12. So chosen, predestined, according to what? God's plan. And then fourthly, God's plan called for a personal salvation that is by name and on purpose and not by chance. John delineates between those of Satan's kingdom whose names were not written in the book of life from the creation of the world. Revelation 17 verse 8 by referring by implication to those whose names were written in the book of life before the creation of the world. So all of the elements, is what I'm saying, all of the elements of this salvation was it devised in God's plan before time. Before time. And the glory of God's plan is this, Isaiah. Remember this, fix it in mind, says Isaiah. Take it to heart, you rebels. Remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God, there's no other. I am God and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times what is still to come. I say, my purpose will stand. I will do all that I please. What I have said I will bring about. What I have planned that I will do. Listen to me, you stubborn hearted. You who are far from righteousness. I am bringing my righteousness near. It's not far away. My salvation will not be delayed. I will grant salvation to Zion, my splendor to Israel. Isaiah 46, verse 8 and following. Jesus in the New Testament words it this way to his disciples. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. John 15, verse 16. And earlier Jesus had taught the crowd at Capernaum, no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. John 6, verse 65. These are the elements of God's plan. And all of that was before time. All of it. And then thirdly about God's plan, he sustains his people. He sustains them. Poor Jonah. He is in a bad way. In his own words, from inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. And he said, in my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. From the depths of the grave, I called for help and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the deep, into the very heart of the seas. And the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight. From inside the fish? What's he doing there? God has hurled him into the deep. And the monster has swallowed him alive. But he thinks he's a goner. Why has this occurred? 
The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and he sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Jonah 1, verses 1 through 3. Jonah ran away, the scripture says. What is this? Jonah is a prophet who refuses to prophesy. He is a preacher of the good news who does not want the hated Ninevites to hear any good news. He is a man commanded by God who balks at God's command and boards a ship in the opposite direction so he can flee from the Lord. Think about that, if that were ever possible. And in conclusion, Jonah is a child of God in rebellion against God. God said, go, and Jonah said, no. He not only protested, he did something about it. He put feet to his protests. He ran fast and hard in the opposite direction of Nineveh. Now Jonah is a child of God. In fact, he's a prophet of God. But one angry with God. He says so in chapter 4 verse 19. He's willing even to die for his cause. He says that too in Jonah 4 and verse 3. But just a few short days before... When he was in the belly of the fish, he said, When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you. When he exclaimed to God that he wanted to die, what was that? That was his anger speaking. Aren't you glad that God does not respond to our anger, to our sin? My point here is that if ever there were a believer who deserved to be abandoned by God, it was Jonah. Few examples in the Bible are so blatant, so bold-faced, so rebellious to the clear command of God than Jonah's rejection of his commission and the justification that he gave for it. I'm right, you're wrong. I know what I'm doing, is what he was telling God. The whole idea that we are saved by God's grace, but thereafter are kept by our own goodness or obedience, is bogus. Man does not make himself spiritually alive, and he cannot keep himself alive. We need grace to take that first step towards Jesus, and we will need grace to take every step thereafter, until we reach glory. It's a life of grace. Grace cannot be stockpiled either. It is a daily necessity and a daily supply that comes from God. I think of it as like the, the manna in the wilderness. The ancient people of God received enough for the day, you remember, but only for the day. If they tried to store the manna, it just rotted on them and was not edible the next day. 
Our Lord has taught us to pray what? Give us this day our daily bread. Daily bread. Because one must feed on Christ the living bread every day to maintain spiritual vitality. Many years ago, the automobile industry initiated changes in their assembly lines. I mean, this is quite a few years ago. These companies had initiated what they called on-time delivery of car parts. This saved them the expense of stockpiling large inventories. So when a red car was coming down the assembly line, a red door was in the pipeline to arrive at just the right moment when the worker needed to bolt that car door onto the car. Well, what would happen if the wrong color were in the pipeline, we had a red car, and here comes this orange door? Whoa, <laughs> what a mess. The line had to be halted, everyone assembled, scrambled to rectify the problem. How'd that happen? How'd that orange door get there in the line and so forth? Somebody messed up and they had to scramble to correct it. May I say that God's grace for living the Christian life is always on time. It is never early. It is never late. It is never a mix-up. Jonah's anger had landed him in the depths of the sea in the belly of a sea monster. Yet he was given the grace to pray to the God from whom he was fleeing of all things. And wonder of wonders, God commanded the fish and out came Jonah. A little worse for wear, but alive and set back on track to do for God what he had commanded Jonah to do. Salvation is of the Lord and God sustains us even when we are faithless, even when we're disobedient, even when we're unruly, rebellious children. Yeah. Listen to the song of Jonah. Did you know he sang a song? He did. Here it is. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. What a wonderful statement. But I, with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord. Jonah 2, verse 8 and 9. Only God gives both saving and sustaining grace. And your, your idols can't do that for you. But God can and does. Now what's the outworking of the truth that salvation is of the Lord? Let me suggest some things. Number one. Because it's of the Lord, it means that any poor sinner can be the subject of saving grace. Any. And you think of some sinners that you think possibly are unsavable. I mean, they're so wicked. They're so hard-hearted. They're so anti-God that eh, there is no way God could save them. Well, since salvation is of the Lord, that thought in your heart is wrong. Any poor sinner can be the subject of saving grace. 
Salvation, being of the Lord, means that it's not open to purchase, nor bribery, nor inheritance, nor reward, no bar- nor b- bargaining, nor bribing, no bidding, none of these things. It is solely dependent upon the will of God himself, by himself, without regard to your station in life. This is utterly foreign to the way our society views things. We think, well, to the victor belongs the spoils. And somehow sinners think they will be the victors. They think they will win heaven if they just uh, try hard enough to be good enough. I've heard the expression, well, you know, everyone has his price. And so people bring that kind of mentality to God. God, what will you take for you to receive, reserve a spot for me in heaven? Everyone has his price. They probably wouldn't say it that boldly, but they're thinking that. One day, John 6, people came to Jesus and they said, Well, uh, Jesus, what must we do uh, to inherit eternal life? See the way they were thinking? Give us something to do. I'm sure we can do it, but we just need to know from you uh, what we need to do. Do you know this concept is so insulting to God? It's blasphemous to think that God's favor can be bought. That God is no better than the money grubbers who peddle their services to the highest bidder. This is the sin of idolatry to which Jonah referred. Men shape God in, which, in their own wicked image. You see, sinners would take the, they would take the bribe. They would take the money and run with it. They would throw open the gates of heaven and they would say, Come on, come all. But only if you drop your coins in the little treasure chest that's at the gate. And this is because greed is part of their nature and they value material wealth at the expense of righteousness. And so they think God's like that. But of God, the chronicler writes, Now now let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Judge carefully, for with the Lord our God there is no injustice or partiality or bribery. Second Chronicles 19 verse 7. Again from Proverbs 17 verse 23. A wicked man accepts a bribe in secret to pervert the course of justice. You get the point? God would have to be both wicked and unjust to accept a payment from you to enter heaven. Why? Because justice demands hell for everyone who opposes God in thought or deed. Hebrews says it this way, If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of a raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. And anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think a man deserves to be punished who has trampled 
the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified him and who has insulted the Spirit of grace. Hebrews 10, verse 26 through 29. It's an insult to try to buy what God's grace, his gift, supplies. What all of this means is this, that station in life, your station in life, means nothing. How much money you have in the bank means nothing. How influential you are with your contemporaries means nothing. How smart, how intellectual means nothing. How connected you are to people in high places means nothing. God's grace has a blind eye to all of these things. God is superior to all of these things. He is not impressed with these things. Paul told the Athenians, who were Greeks, who prided themselves in all of these things. Here's what he said. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. By your hands is the idea. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Because he himself gives all men life and breath and, and everything else. Acts 17, verse 24 and 25. Eliphaz, one of the friends of Job, asked this question. Can a man be of benefit to God? This is a soul-searching question. Can a man be of benefit to God? He goes on. Can even a wise man Benefit him. Uh, what pleasure would it give the Almighty if you were righteous? What would he gain if your ways were blameless? Job 22, verse 2 and 3. So here, Eliphaz is hitting on things that we might think are pretty good. A blameless man, a righteous man. But even if you were those things, says Eliphaz, even if you were those things, would that somehow benefit God? Would that improve God? All the pride of man, all his strongholds, all his self-help methodology, all his trust in his own ingenuity is worthless if salvation is of the Lord. The poor are as savable as the rich, the ignorant as savable as the wise, the nobodies of society as well as the somebodies of society. God is intent on this, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him, writes Paul, that you are in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, 
That is, he is our righteousness, our holiness, our redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. 1 Corinthians 1, 27 and following. Tremendous lesson to learn here. Because salvation is of the Lord, all those that are bankrupt spiritually and so forth are savable people. They're savable. It doesn't depend on them. It depends on God. Here's the second truth to take to heart. Get this basic truth right, that is, that salvation is of the Lord, and all else will be right. But get it wrong, and you will be wrong everywhere else. If you truly believe that salvation is of the Lord, of necessity, you will be sound in the faith. Every heresy, every quirky doctrine of men, every wrong assumption in religion, every misguided spiritual thought or effort is rooted in a wrong understanding of God and his salvation. But conversely, every right thought, every happy thought, every peaceful notion, every comfort in God flows from the firm affirmation that salvation is of the Lord. Now, if you believe this, you will not be arrogant. You will not be proud. You will not be smug. You will not be know-it-all. You will not look down on your brethren, nor think it your task to set everybody straight. You will not fail to be thankful and appreciative and to live life in humble gratitude. Why? Because the glory is God's, and you wish it to be that way. Again, you will not take sin lightly. You will not see holiness as an unobtainable and therefore useless goal no matter how often you fail. Your dependence on God's grace to save you will look to God's grace to conform you to the image of Jesus the Savior. Again, if you believe that salvation is of the Lord, your fears will be laid to rest. You will know that your salvation does not depend upon your own fortitude, but on God's faithfulness. Isaiah put it this way. In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. God makes salvations its walls and ramparts. Open the gates that the righteous nation may enter, the nation that keeps faith. You will keep in perfect peace him whose mind is steadfast because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever. For the Lord, the Lord is the rock eternal. Isaiah 26, first four verses. Knowing that salvation is of the Lord is what calms our heart. Thirdly, we need to learn that if salvation is of the Lord, then damnation and hell is of your own doing. Hard pill to swallow, but it's true. Here's what your earning power nets you. You cannot buy heaven, but you have plenty to buy hell. 
Like Adam and Eve of old, you have believed the lie of Satan, that you can be your own God and need not listen to any command from the Creator. Yet even in your deadness towards God, even in your unbelief, God comes to you as to Israel of old, and he pleads, As surely as I live, declares the Sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their wicked way and live. Turn! Turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, O house of Israel? Ezekiel 33, verse 11. Every person in hell today is there of, excuse me, of their own doing. <coughs> the blame cannot be laid at God's feet, but squarely on their own shoulders. <clears throat> they committed spiritual suicide. They killed themselves. How did they do that? By following the prince of darkness. <clears throat> the Apostle John warns us, you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. 1 John 3.15 As surely as salvation is of the Lord, murder is of that one whom Jesus labeled a murderer from the beginning. Listen to him and you die, as Adam and Eve did. Listen to God, you live. I'll say it in Isaiah's terms. Let the wicked forsake his ways and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord, and he will have mercy on him. And to our God, for he will freely pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. Isaiah 55, verse 7 and 8. Your stubbornness will be your downfall. That stubbornness is from the pit of hell, and it has been the coffin of many a soul. Paul words it this way, but because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. Romans 2, verse 5. But God doesn't want that. God says, turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die? Why indeed? When salvation, God's gift, is available for the asking. Our Lord, we're thankful for the fact that salvation is of the Lord. If it were of us, we'd have all kinds of schemes in place to try to impress God, to try to earn a spot in heaven, we, because of our sinfulness, would vie for the best chairs, the best thrones. Even the disciples, they bickered among themselves as to who would be the greatest in the kingdom. These were, were your disciples, and, and yet... 
They were thinking in, in earthly terms. They forgot how wicked they were and how beholden they were to the grace of God. Lord, don't allow us to fall into that terrible, terrible pit of pride and arrogance. It brought Satan low from heaven and it brings all men low to the depths of hell because they think there's something terrific about them and they forget that they cannot even measure up to their creator, their Lord, the one to whom they must give an account. If one is here that doesn't know Christ as Savior, doesn't even think that they need to know Christ as Savior, does not recognize that they are a sinner and lost, that they are sinking in the depths of the sea, that they're goners as Jonah was, until he understood and prayed that salvation is of the Lord. If there's one like that, then I pray, Lord, that today you will find them. Bring them out of the seaweed out of the breakers, out of the depths of the sea, the mountains that are surrounding them, bring them up and let them gasp and find the breath of life in Jesus Christ. Let them find solid terra firma upon which to live their life. And I pray, Father, that you will do that for your glory and our good. Amen. Our closing hymn is from Trinity, 180. One hundred eighty in the red hymnal. <laughs> 